Welcome to Surfcast. Thank you for joining me. My guest today is Hal Donaldson. Hal is the founder and president of Convoy of Hope. Convoy of Hope is one of the leading charities in the world. Uh, thousands and actually into the millions of lives changed by the generosity of many people who have supported the efforts of Convoy of Hope. One of my most exciting um, comments that I read about Hal is this. He is an agitator with purpose. It's kind of cool. Over 30 books, great guy, great story. Stick around. You're going to enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Hal. Hal, welcome to Surfcast, man. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good, and uh, thanks for having me on, William. Really appreciate it. Now, it looks like you're traveling still in the middle of a pandemic because you guys have to make a lot of impact in people's lives. Is that true? Yeah, I, you know, while some people maybe uh, circle the wagons and go into retreat mode, um, charities like Convoy of Hope, we, uh, this is our time to rush into the fire and yeah. to help as many people as we can. You know, not just a pandemic, but man, what a, what a um, string of hurricanes that we have had across the U.S., in particular the Southeast this year. Uh, I lost count. What is it, six or five or six now, I think, that um, have just kind of made tremendous amount of damage? They have. And then simultaneously, you have the fires on the West Coast and you have typhoon and typhoons in the Philippines and uh, Southeast Asia and uh, Conway of Hope. We counted at one time, William, we were responding to 16 major disasters at one time. Wow. Wow. So tell us what Convoy of Hope is, Hal. Gonna, you know, we'll dig into your story in a little bit, but, but tell us what Convoy of Hope is. You know, we see these trucks um, with your charity and other charities of friends that I've known, you know, that, that um, these trucks are rolling down the road and you know they've got good in them and they're, they're going to make an impact. But, but give, uh, give our audience an idea of what Convoy of Hope is. Yeah, obviously, uh, disaster response is a, a really important component. Um, what we do, everything we do, William, is through local churches um, of different denominations. And uh, it's one of our core values uh, that we're going to work through the local church because Conway of Hope will rush in and we'll meet needs, but we're going to leave at some point. And so our, our job is to, uh, in terms of disasters, is to elevate the local church, but also lift up the name of Jesus. And um, in addition to that, we do community outreaches across the United States where we'll bring together uh, maybe 100 churches, uh, businesses, civic organizations, government agencies. We'll bring them together to really reach their community over a, a few days, uh, over a weekend. And we'll provide a full menu of services, um, uh, medical and dental care, job fairs, free shoes for kids, free haircuts, groceries, and, and much more. And um, they attract sometimes 10, 15,000 people, mm -hmm. uh, mega events. And then internationally, we really have three prongs that we, uh, we work off of. One is we were involved in children's feeding. We feed 360,000 children every day uh, wow. in schools. Uh, we, uh, we also train thousands of mothers of these children every year, helping them start their own businesses so they can feed their own kids. And then third is our agriculture initiative. And every year we're training thousands of farmers helping them increase their yields. You know, when we talk about hunger um, and we're in, a, in, you know, in the United States and we talk about hunger from a North America perspective, obviously, and I work at a university, you know, and we, we educate students on the value of a global perspective, you know, a holistic education, helping them to understand that 
their contribution, you know, of serving others makes long lasting impact. And we think about it, you know, too often we go to um, third world countries or we go to the other side of the, of the of the lake, as some of our friends would say, you know, and, and we look at that, but there's a huge hunger crisis in, in North America, right? Uh, something like 50 million homes or something uh, in a recent survey. Give me some insight on that. What, what does current day hunger look like in North America? Well, the numbers are escalating because in 2019, that number was about 35 million, and now it's up over 50 million. And, and here's the reality of hunger in America, is that you, um, you have many people, millions that are on food stamps, but those food stamps are running out about halfway through the month. And so it's the last two weeks of the month that they, they find very perilous, very difficult um, to make ends meet. And uh, then on top of that, you have a pandemic where you have corporations that are, uh, are pinched as well, and they don't have the food and the supplies to give out, to donate. Uh, you have children that no longer have access to school feeding programs. And then you have unemployment, and uh, you, you ha have all those factors coming together, and that's the reason why those numbers are going up. And one of the things, William, I really have been encouraging our government to do is to create greater incentives for corporations to give to charities mm -hmm. uh, to help us get through this difficult time. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the international scene, you're talking about three prongs and you mentioned that, but when you talk about North America, you know, you're using this term um, markets, you know, what, what kind of markets are we seeing in, in North America? Because, okay, so I remember um, in 2011 when the string of tornadoes came through, my house was, was one of the houses in our, in our county that was hit. I mean, we, we were able to build back and thankfully, you know, we have resources and we have momentum, but, but at that point, you know, it was, it was pretty bad. I was down on Katrina, on the coast of Katrina, right after the Katrina hurricane years ago, three days in, um, you know, people from every walk of life were lining up for resources, you know? So, so what are you talking about when you say, you know, the markets and, and who are the people that you're serving most currently in North America? Does that yeah, make well, sense? It does. Totally. Uh, you know, so like in times of disaster, they, they tend to be uh, somewhat um, um, isolated in a certain area. With a pandemic, you're talking about every community across the nation that's being affected. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of uh, the, the hunger in America and those who are hungry, a lot of times we think in terms of the homeless. No, we're talking about the working poor. These are people that are working two jobs. Um, and they're having a very difficult time making ends meet. Their food stamps have run out. Uh, their children don't have access to school lunches. And they're the people who are, are coming for help. And on top of that, William, you have the, uh, the food banks across our country that are feeling the pinch. They are just, um, they're running out of food and supplies and corporations don't have the supplies to give them. And so, you know, this is a, this is a major crisis in our nation, but here's what the, the solution is. I believe it's the local church. Mm -hmm. And when Convoy of Hope, back in March, when the pandemic began to ramp up, um, we sent word out to churches saying, if you are willing to turn your church parking lot into a distribution center, we will resource you. Mm -hmm. Now, we started with a, a goal of 10 million meals. And as of today, we're over 150 million meals. Wow. Why? Because more than 3,000 churches stepped up and said, wow. we want to participate. We'll, we'll be a part of it. And 
you know, I, I, I have a friend who is a Bible historian, church historian, and he tells me this is probably one of the, the largest, if not the largest, um, act of compassion of this kind, unified act of compassion of this kind our nation has ever seen. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, that's interesting because you were part of uh, Feed LA back in many years ago, you know, and, and you guys have done a number of um, kind of pocket distributions over the years, you know, that were large scale. And I mean, I've, I've seen you from a distance, you know, and we talked earlier before we actually hit record on the show, you know, we have mutual friends, but, but um, so why is this different? I mean, let, let's unpack this for a minute, Hal, as it relates to the local church, because you're saying local churches, but you're not giving any distinction on denominationalism or any kind of thing like that, but a local church that really wants to connect with you guys 3000 talk about that man what it looks like okay so we're going to feed la on three days you know but now we're talking about 3000 churches across the landscape what, what does that actually look like yeah you know I, I i must tell you i was surprised uh, and i i would like to think that uh, it's twofold one is that around for many years and built up a lot of relationships and people knew that they could uh, trust us. Um, I think that's, that hopefully that's part of the reason that so many have responded. And I think there's another factor. You have a number of churches that have been unable to meet. They've been unable to congregate, but they realized that they could meet needs. They couldn't necessarily meet in person, but they could meet needs. Okay. And um, we went in and, and we've been showing them how to do it safely so that people aren't put at risk. And uh, what we saw, what we've learned through disaster response has also, I guess, uh, paid great dividends because we've been able to respond now to a crisis like this one. Um, yeah, but I'm just, I can't say enough about the churches that have said, okay, we've done this now with the pandemic, but we want to continue to do it. I think there are long-term benefits to churches that are reaching out to their community. They've seen what can be accomplished. It's a number of people that we've been able to pray with in parking lots. You know, we've seen the tears. Mm -hmm. We've seen the gratitude. And um, I think uh, churches are going to make this a part of their everyday, their ongoing uh, activity. Yeah. Now, you've been doing this uh, two decades. Is that correct? Yeah, 26 years. It's hard to believe. But uh, So how has that changed over the years? What's different now than what it was like when you first started? When we started, it wasn't about building and it's still a ministry. Our team is going to say it a lot. It's not about building conflict. Hang on a minute, Hal. I'm having a little bit of difficulty with the uh, with the audio, so uh, okay. I'm going to have go ahead. I'm going to have you um, repeat that answer for a second. I'm got maybe we're having a little bit of weather issue, but uh, okay. So how is this different now than it was when you guys first started 26 years ago? 26 years ago, we started with a pickup truck. Um, so we've obviously scaled up. And, um, but back then, you know, William, it wasn't about uh, um, building a ministry or, or launching a charity. Um, we did that kind of after the fact. This was just about doing the next kind thing that Jesus was asking us to do. And, um, you know, so Convoy of Hope um, has been driven by need. Um, there hasn't been a master plan. It's been, you see a need, and we're going to do our best to respond and meet that need. And that's what God has blessed. 
that that just that um, entrepreneurial, adventuresome spirit. You see see a problem, you see a crisis, you see people who are dying, people in need, and just going and representing Jesus in some pretty dark places uh, to some pretty hopeless people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so hopefully that same spirit will continue uh, for many years to come because that's what the Lord is blessing. You know, not, not everybody can, can knock out 30 books. You know, not everybody can actually um, write 30 books. And you have two of your most recent books, the one that I, that I got to digging into a little bit, um, disruptive compassion, you know, and there's this, there's this uh, phrase in there of an agitator with purpose. Talk about that. What does that mean? What does that look like? And, and why did you write that book? Oh, thank you. Well, um, maybe I'll take the, the last part of that question first. Uh, I was <laughs> speaking at, I was speaking at the university of Missouri and, um, and at, at the end of the speech, um, there was an open microphone and students were able to go up to the microphone and ask anything they wanted. And what I heard them say that day was, hey, I want my life to count. I want to do something yeah. to make the world a better place. I just don't know what to do. And so, you know, returning home from the University of Missouri, I began to just, you know, ask myself and ask God, is there a need for a book that's a playbook on how to take your life and everything you have and to dedicate it to um, making the world a better place and represent Jesus. And so that's really where the book came from. Uh, the, the term about agitator with purpose really is the fact that status quo, the status quo is the enemy. Sure. And it's our enemy. And if we just allow things to continue the way they are, there are many people who aren't going to come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. And there are many needs that are not going to be met. Mm-hmm. Status quo is the enemy. And in order to really defeat the status quo, we have to agitate. We have to agitate it. We have to ask the hard questions. And um, that's really what I meant by it, William. Mm-hmm. I like it. I think it's engaging. I think it's relevant. I think it's uh, somewhat fun in a lot of ways. You know, of course, those of us that are, um, boy, lack of a better term, or mavericks of sort, you know, who just kind of keep pushing through and pushing through, you know, um, we understand that idea. Simon Sinek uses this phrase, start with why. You know, Simon Sinek did a TED Talk on start with why and man revolutionary and corporations and companies and, and organizations, they're all trying to figure out their why. Now, you've been doing this for 26 years, but there's a bigger story than that. There's an earlier story than that. There's a story of your childhood and, and, and your life and, and coming through poverty. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit for us and Tell us the why you started with the pickup truck that takes us back. And the reason I want to go there, Hal, is because a lot of times people feel like that, that their, their lack or their difficulty sidelines them. That's not really true. That can actually propel them, you know. So right. talk about it a little bit. You got, you, can you do that for me? Absolutely. Yeah. And just to maybe piggyback on what you just said, you know, I think a lot of people feel like their pain or their past disqualifies them Um, and actually it probably qualifies them and uh, you know in my case um, I was 12 when my father and mother were hit by a drunk driver Uh, my father was killed instantly my mother was seriously injured and would be um, crippled essentially the rest of her life and uh, she didn't have a college degree and uh, but my parents didn't have insurance 
and the man who hit them didn't have insurance. Wow. And so our family was forced to survive on welfare. And you know, when you're raised poor, um, without food in the cupboards, having to go to school with holes in your shoes, um, you know, when you're, when you're raised poor, you begin a quest not to be poor anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you want to turn that around. And that certainly was my life. And um, I went and um, got several degrees and, um, from universities. And um, I began to write books in my 20s. And I received a book contract that took me to Calcutta, India. And um, when I arrived, my hosts, some missionaries I was writing the book for, they said, well, there's someone we want you to interview for our book. And they took me over to meet Mother Teresa. Yeah. And in the course of that conversation with me, she just simply asked, uh, young man, um, may I ask you, what are you doing to help the poor and the suffering? And I figured I shouldn't lie to her. And uh, <laughs> I, I told her the truth. I said, I'm really not doing much of anything. And she replied, well, everyone can do something. Yeah. And those words were haunting to me. And I came back to the States and, um, I literally was praying in my office and I felt like, I felt like God was just telling me to uh, do something quite unusual to travel to eight cities and to live in the streets for three days and three nights. Wow. I went to Miami, Atlanta, Chicago, DC, New York, major cities. I rode with the police on the midnight shift. I walked the streets after midnight with a hidden tape recorder, interviewing drug addicts, gang members, prostitutes, runaways. And all I can tell you is that uh, it changed me. It broke my heart. And um, I like to tell people that God had to do a work in my heart before he could do a work through my hands. Mm. And he broke my heart. And honestly, um, that first pickup truck, that first food distribution was not about building a charity or a ministry. It was all about just doing the next kind thing that Jesus put in front of me. I uh, I got a, I got an intentional pause here for a minute because I, I just wrote down what you just said. God had to do a work in my heart before He would do a work in my hands. Yeah. You know, a lot of good happens that isn't that isn't even faith based. But unfortunately, I don't think you can be claiming you know faith and not be a person who's going to do good and give to sure. people. Um, how are you seeing people developed in their own personal discipleship way after they spend three days with you, um, sending trucks to their city, sending trucks to their church, you know, what are you seeing changed in their lives? Yeah, I think there's, there's two changes that are taking place. Uh, one is among the recipients, um, and the other is amount is among the givers. Um, the believers who are passing out the food and the supplies. I think there are changes taking place in both. Um, you know, when I was a kid and I, um, our cupboards were empty. Uh, there were many people who would come to our door week after week with bags of groceries to help us get through uh, the month. And um, so as a kid, I, I experienced the shame of poverty. I know what it's like to go into a store with food stamps. I know what it's like to go into a classroom and have holes in your shoes. I know that. But I also know the power of kindness. Um, I wouldn't be talking to you today, William, if people hadn't wrapped their arms around me and showed me kindness Mm -hmm. at a critical time in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, That changed my life. 
And that's what we're seeing across the nation. We're seeing um, people who are the recipients, tears coming to their eyes. They're telling us their stories, how that their cupboards were bare. They didn't know where to turn. And somehow they were led to a Conway of Hope distribution. And they found, maybe for the first time in a long time, they found people who really cared, who looked them in the eye and asked them their name and, and treated them with dignity. Mm -hmm. the, the second thing, though, it's for, it's for those who are giving. Um, they're discovering that they can make a difference. Here's what happens within the church. A lot of times we see the magnitude of the, the need, the enormity of the need, and we are paralyzed by the enormity of the need. You know, Jesus never asked us to feed the world. He asked us to feed the person right in front of us. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening one by one. These thousands and thousands of volunteers are discovering that indeed they can make a difference, that Jesus can work through them to give people hope. Mm -hmm. You know, you got really good at doing the uh, distribution with uh, the, the natural disasters and all of that, you know, yeah. but a pandemic was a new playbook for you. It was a new thing for you. What have you learned through that that's going to take you guys into the next century? Yeah, I mean, this is very philosophical, but I, I think it's true. Um, once again, we discovered that if we are willing, if we raise our hand and say, um, we'll represent you in some very dark situations. If we're willing to try, he will provide. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I didn't have enough faith for 150 million meals. Um, we're on our way to 250, by the way. Um, wow. And, you know, I, I just would just say that we just we rediscovered that that willingness. Um, God blesses it. Mm -hmm. He blesses it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know where this will end. Um, I don't know all that God has in mind for Convoy of Hope. Um, but that's not as important as what he has in mind for the church. Mm -hmm. And Convoy Hope is a catalyst, a resourcer for the local church. And if we want to uh, make the world a better place, we want to turn things around, it's not going to happen in Washington, D.C. I'm sorry, it's not. It's going to happen at the local church level, where we as a church are willing to get outside the walls and to do the work of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Man, I tell you, I for the folks that are watching us or listening to us on audio, they can't see what I'm seeing. And I, I see these moments where, you know, where your eyes are filling up with water and, and uh, you know, your, your heart and your, your real genuine passion is coming out and, and you're taking us on a journey through something that you experience personally in your own life. Um, how, what do you do to refuel yourself? because you give and give and give, you know, I think Brendan Manning wrote a book um, one time called Running on Empty. And, you know, unfortunately, caregivers and, and people of kindness and, and servant-minded folks, you know, man, they give and give and give. And if we're not careful, we can deplete our own tank. You know, yes. what do you do to, uh, you know, and I know your, your, your faith walk and your, you know, your discipline of, of, of prayer and study and the word is all of those, but, but on a practical sense, what do you do to refuel, man? How do you keep yourself going so that you can keep giving? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting you'd, you'd raise that question because that was a question uh, we were discussing as a family last night. Um, because um, 
we've seen a lot of pain. My family has seen a lot of pain um, around the world, across the United States. We've seen a lot of hurting people. And um, as you can imagine, that raises a lot of questions. You know, why, why do people suffer? Good people suffer? You know, those kind of questions. And um, I have uh, two daughters that are in college, and my wife and I were with them last night, and we were talking about this very issue of how do you refuel. But I think it first begins with an understanding that there are many questions that we will not have answered until we are in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and we cannot allow ourselves to be paralyzed by unanswerable questions. It'd be easy to throw um, uh, just um, phrases, um, you know, I guess slogans at some of those big questions. I refuse to. Uh, there are just some things I cannot explain. When I get to heaven, I'll have a chance to ask God that those questions. Mm-hmm. But for now, I can't allow unanswerable questions to paralyze me. That's what the enemy wants to do. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who aren't doing good. They aren't representing Jesus fully. Why? Because they have all these questions that are circling. And I, I just think that we need to understand there are some things that are left for heaven. Mm-hmm. And we just have to keep busy. So coming to your question about refueling, um, I think one is you have to surround yourself with the right people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, I think leaders surround themselves with uh, people who tell them what they want to hear and people who um, are, are there maybe more to coddle them yeah. than to convict them. And um, I just really feel like that's you know, one of the things that's critical in my life, to surround myself with the right people. I think the second is that um, uh, periodically I do an exercise where I, um, I'll read the Gospels repeatedly um, day after day. Uh, we are January 1, we're beginning a four-month 89 chapters, uh, 89 days, where we're going to read the go- a chapter from the Gospels every day. Um, that refuels me. And um, we do that periodically because that can be life-changing. It can be correcting. It can show you things in your life that maybe that aren't measuring up to Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the third thing is I don't feel guilty and leaders shouldn't feel guilty for stealing away, yeah. really emulating Jesus and getting away just getting alone with him, getting alone um, with um, your thoughts, your prayers, your cries. And um, I journal every day, every day, um, and have been for over 10 years. And um, that's where I really, I write things down, William. I, I, tell, I tell God how I'm feeling. I, I ask him to do certain things. And I've discovered through the years that God is a great reader. He's a great reader. Yeah. And, and if I take the time to write it down, um, he and I are both accountable for it. Yeah, good. Well, I don't think you're going to stop at 30. So is there another book brewing already in your, uh, in your inner soul? Yeah, there is actually. And it's, um, it's uh, uh, I don't have a title yet, but I can really give you the, the thrust of what it is. I really want to, uh, I've been collecting data and, and, um, and just notes and so forth. But I want to write on um, how to take a spiritual pilgrimage, pilgrimage right where you are. Oh. Uh, you don't have to travel around the world. You can take a pilgrimage right where you are. And so how do we do that? So that's really what's on my heart right now. Well, that's good. Now, not including the 30 books that you have written, these don't qualify here. Um, what's your favorite book and why? 
And yeah, the Bible well. doesn't qualify either. <laughs> it all, the Bible qualifies always how, but not in this question. Well, it, it, you know, when people ask me that question, I, I typically give them um, two that are, uh, that are a little surprising to them. And, uh, but one is called The Real Faith uh, by Charles Price back in the 1930s. Yep. A little booklet. Um, but that really transformed uh, how I, um, I look at faith. And he really talks about the importance of the gift of faith. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times we feel like we have to muster up faith. What he taught was that faith is really a gift. And we just need to ask for that gift. And for me, that was transformational. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really helped me understand that um, uh, I need to ask God for the gift of faith to believe for 150 million meals, um, uh, for example. And the other book that uh, really was life-changing for me was Holy Living, Holy Dying by Jeremy Taylor, written back in the 1700s. And uh, those two books have really had an impact on me. Uh, there are certainly some that have been more recent than that, but those are two that come to mind. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about this at the front end. We have a, a mutual friend who has passed now and, and uh, you know, Dave Lorenzi. And, oh. man, I see a lot of similarities. I see in, you know, and, and he, he's worked in the same area, the same field that you've been in for many years. And, um, and what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm seeing as I'm listening to you and, and, and looking at you and then replaying many conversations and times that I've sat around the table with Dave is that, um, and both of you are, are, you know, laden with awards and recognition and, you know, accolades and all of that stuff. But, but what I'm sensing today, somehow, all of those don't matter. It's the next meal that's needed. It's the next truck that's going to be, it's the next airplane that's got to unload. It's the next ship container that's got to unload. How, how do our listeners, and we're getting ready to close this episode today, and hopefully we'll get you back on at another point, but, but, but how do our listeners develop this mindset that I see in you and I see in Dave and a number of other people that I, I have met over the years that, that while what you're doing gets praised and appreciated, it's really not about what's being praised and appreciated. It's about what's the next contribution that I can't miss. Does that make sense? It does. You know, I, you just made me think about when Dave passed. I, uh, I don't know his wife, um, his children, um, but I wrote them a letter and I just, I thank them for um, how Dave led with humility. Mm -hmm. I, I think that uh, we're lacking a lot of that today. Um, it's, uh, we've replaced, supplanted uh, humility with theatrics. And um, I think uh, if we're going to become more like Jesus, we have to leave it with humility. Um, and I think leaders have to learn to um, let both accolades and criticism to roll off their back. Um, when you begin to say, well, this is because of me, I think you cross the line. And, um, you know, I think uh, as leaders, we, we have to almost... Uh, discourage people from putting us up on pedestals because pedestals are diving boards. That's what yeah. they are. Yeah. And um, if you're put up on a pedestal at some point, you may be taking a, a deep dive, a deep fall uh, because pride comes before the fall. Sure. And um, I just think it's so critical. I'm not sure if I answered your question, but uh, 
you know, that is something I just, I just so firmly believe that if we'll lead with humility, our people will, um, will emulate that. Well, you did answer my question and you, I'm going to pull a quote now from what you said that I want to make sure that our listeners grab. This is very, very important because we're very quick to let criticism roll off, but we're also prone to embrace accolades. That's right. And you said you have to let both accolades and criticisms roll off your back. You know, um, wow, I think that's a, that's a good closing word for us today to understand that, that um, man, sometimes we only get one chance, you know, and if we're stuck on the accolade or sidelined by the criticism, then we might miss the opportunity. Well said. Closing thoughts, last comments to our listeners, Hal. Uh, I'd say maybe uh, January 1, um, begin reading the Gospels. Good. And, uh, you know, let it transform your life. Let it convict you. Let it encourage you. And, uh, you know, uh, just keep reading the Gospels for 89 days and watch what happens. Hmm. How can people get a hold of you? How can they connect with Convoy of Hope? Yeah, very simply, uh, convoyofhope.org. Good. And, uh, you know, I would just like to add this. I, I do believe, I, I really do like to encourage people to give through their local church. And uh, for this reason, is that um, most of the churches that I know have a big heart. Um, and uh, they have a desire to do local outreach and local compassion. Um, and uh, I'd like to encourage people to give to that need in the local church. And um, if they decide they want to give more to Convoy of Hope, that's fine. But I think it does begin at the local church mm -hmm. because we're trying to change the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not just trying to build a ministry. Absolutely. Hal, listen, man, it has been great to meet you on the screen and talk with you. Too. And I hope this is the beginning of a, uh, a lasting friendship for us. Hey, me too, William. And, and congratulations on the podcast. You got Sounds it, man. Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Surfcast. As always, I want to remind you, we are made for more. We get opportunities in life and sometimes they only come one time. What will you do with the opportunities that are in front of you right now? Hey, we'll catch you after the new year or in the new year. We'll catch you after Christmas back on our, our episodes of Surfcast. And I hope that the next time you listen to us, you will have been able to have dug in already by about two weeks, um, taking on Howe's Challenge to begin a gospel a day, a chapter a day from the Gospels. It can change your life. Thanks, Al. Thanks, listeners. We'll catch you next time. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to Surfcast with Dr. William Lamb. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Surfcast to stay updated on special guests and future episodes.